This week on the show, we have OpenBSD 6.5 release. We also cover how to mount a ZFS dataset anywhere. We also help test the upcoming NetBSD 9 branch with a call for testing. Uh, LibreSSL 2.9.1 is available. The bail bond denied edition of FreeBSD Jails Mastery is also interesting. And we have one reason Ed was a good editor back in the days in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 296. It's alive! OpenBSD 6.5. Recorded on the 1st of May 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're glad that you've tuned in this week uh, with our usual uh, studio. Remember last week, Alan was in a different location, but now he's Mm -hmm. back in his usual place. And we have headlines for you, of course. OpenBSD 6.5 has been released. We couldn't make it to last week's episode because that one was already full. But now we give you the full coverage of the new release. Mm-hmm. You know, as part of the update, they've improved quite a few things, including uh, more hardware support, making playing the default compiler for MIPS 64. The default linker has been switched from the Binutils BFD to the Clang LLD for both AMD 64 and i386. Um, Octane systems can now detect the number of cores. However, manually setting of num cores and core mask, etc., is still needed if you want to enable the secondary cores. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have more support for the Octane GPIO for KVM para virtualized clock. Um, the new IXL driver for Intel um, 700 series 10 gig Ethernet controllers, or I think that's 10 and 40 gig possibly. Um, They have a driver for the i.mx system reset controller for embedded stuff, Uh, drivers for the Marvel Armada 7K and 8K GICP controllers, and a bunch of other interesting embedded stuff, and a new driver to support USB audio class devices uh, so that generic audio devices will just work under one generic driver. Cool. And this is just hardware. Yep. Improvements <laughs> to the wireless stack, including improved transmit rate selection for the IWM driver, which is the modern Intel one, improved radio hardware calibration for the ATHN driver for Aetheros, a uh, bunch of stuff like that. Added a new routing socket message uh, for state changes in DH client in the route command. Uh, and if you configure auto-join, wireless interfaces will no longer connect to unknown open networks by default. This behavior must uh, now be explicitly enabled by adding an empty network name to the, the join thing. So if config IWM join and then uh, a blank name in quotes so that it actually becomes a parameter and that will uh, make it auto-join. Yeah, I remember we were talking to Peter Hessler about this feature, about mm-hmm. making it uh, available to other operating systems or other BSDs as well, because it's kind of like everyone should have that. Yep. Uh, various security improvements to Unveil, uh, applying Unveil to more utilities like OSPFD, uh, Rebound, GetConf, uh, Password, SpamLogD, etc. Uh, some routing stuff, uh, quite a few improvements, almost a whole page full for BGPD. Oh, yeah. 
um, adding KCOV support, so kernel code coverage, so that it's possible to tell, you know, when one side an if statement is never being taken by any code path, and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. Added a new uh, video promise to pledge to specify that the application should be allowed to talk to the video drivers. And then updating a bunch of embedded software, including OpenSMPDD, um, LibreSSL, OpenSSH, Mandoc, Xenokara, uh, Clang slash LLVM, uh, adding some patches for GCC, uh, 4.2.1, uh, and updating the packages, including uh, 10,602 packages for AMD64, and about 70 or so less for i386 and 9,654 for ARM64. So almost as many as they have for AMD64. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. And as a small note, there is um, also the work has started on the ISC-licensed rsync-compatible program called OpenRsync. Uh, mm -hmm. In this release, it has a basic functionality uh, such as dash A or dash dash delete, but lacks dash dash exclude, but work will continue, they write. So that's something people might uh, want to look mm -hmm. out for. Um, I think exclude is one of the only other features beyond basic dash A and dash delete that I would ever use. Mm. <laughs> okay. I think the other so, yeah. one I've used is um, delayed update or whatever, where it keeps... Normally, when you uh, rsync a file... It copies it to a temporary file and then replaces the the uh, file it's updating atomically at um, per file. But with delayed update, it does the temporary version of every file and then only renames all into place all at once at the end. So that if you have multiple files that need to be atomically switched together, uh, it's a much tighter window. Mm. Very nice. Especially useful if you're doing an rsync that's going to take a few hours. You don't end up with some of the files updated and some of them not. Uh, you get either everything's changed or nothing's changed yet. Yeah, that's what the downside is. It have. takes more space, mm. but that's a trade-off that a lot of people might be willing to do with this mm -hmm. uh, space in abundance. Yep. Uh, okay. So if you check out OpenBSD six point five and have a little review or notes or whatever, uh, do send them in uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, next up, we have we a have... post from our... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, mounted ZFS data sets anywhere you want. So From our uh, friend uh, Dan Langill. Mm -hmm. uh, always blogging everything that he's uh, doing or exploring in the BSD space or uh, on server space in very, general. It, so what he does is super useful. Not just for everybody else, but more importantly for him. So when he's going to go make a change or something to his system, he starts a blog post and first captures the current state of his system. And then, you know, writes down the every command he does and the output. So when mm. he runs into a problem and says, like, hey, Alan, I was trying to do this and it's gone <laughs> off the rails, I can quickly say, okay, so that's how it was before. And there's what you did. Oh, there's the error message that... Uh, you know, it says that you needed to do this before you do that. Mm. Or you're missing this parameter or yeah. whatever. Yeah, uh, it makes it much easier to help him with any problems he might have because I can see what it looked like when he started, not just what it looks like now, and have the question of, well, how did it get like that? Mm -hmm. 
So it's your little collection of breadcrumbs to follow along. Yes. Uh, so it's super useful for him, but it's also useful for other people uh, who could maybe run into the same problem or want to perform the same procedure, and they can this way tell, you know, if their system is different than his before the start and so on. Mm -hmm. And this time it's about ZFS datasets and mounting them. Mm -hmm. And uh, he writes that ZFS is very flexible about mount points. There are many features available to ability that already but Sorry, when you create uh, up a bit here in this case internet. his main your internet is wobbling and your video keeps bumping up and down it's a little weird really anyway so yeah uh we're talking about mount points uh in zfs and it says when you create uh, a new z pool um it often you know if you create a new pool called main underscore tank it will be mounted as slash main underscore tank in the root of your file system and any uh, data sets you create under it will be mounted under that path. Similar to you see here, he's got a data set called data, one in there called DVL, and one called Freshports, and so on. Uh, you might be happy with that, but you might not be. Uh, <laughs> you can do magical things. Uh, so mount points are inherited, meaning that if you set the mount point on a parent, all of its child uh, data sets will use that as their base and add their own name to the end of it to come up with their own mount point. Uh, but some interesting things is not every file system needs to be mounted. You can have some that aren't if you want. And each file system can have different ZFS characteristics and properties. Uh, in this case, let's look at the new zpool that Dan just created. Uh, and can show you how some of these alternatives work. So in this case, this zpool uses an NVMe device, so it's really fast, even faster than SSDs. Uh, and so his plan is to run all his bacular regression tests on it concurrently. Uh, so his use case uh, is to have a storage area for bacular regression tests uh, in jail and have seven different ones. And then there are directories within the MySQL 5.7 jail, uh, like vardb mysql that he wants to have separate because they'll have different settings so okay. his goal is to have as few mount directives as possible and use inheritance as much as possible and make it so it just mounts in the right spot makes sense yeah uh so we can see that he looks uh here and he creates um a new pool called nvd um, because that's the FreeBSD driver name for NVMe. Uh, but he sets that with the dash O property. So when he does zpool create, he adds dash O cam mount equals off. So the MVD directory itself doesn't actually get mounted. The root of the pool is not mounted, and therefore you um, can't write to it, which uh, goes back to um, one of the talks uh, after mine at Linux Fest Northwest was how to get the most out of ZFS. And one of the recommendations that I strongly agree with is don't put stuff in the root of your pool. Mm, yeah. Put, uh, you know, put it on data sets so that you can move it around and rename it and uh, replicate it more easily. Yeah, create as many data sets as you want, like you did with uh, folders early, earlier. Yep. Um, and you see here, then he sets compression to LZ4. Um, you can do that after the fact, or you can make it part of your... Um, uh, zpool create if you haven't created the pool yet oh, I see uh, 
And then you can see he's got a bunch of um, IOKH jails on his system data set. So he sets the mount point of his NVD uh, pool to actually be slash IOKH slash jails so that every data set he creates under this will become slash IOKH slash jails slash the name. Uh, it says we're going to be uh, messing about with the data, and while you might be able to do this while the jail is running, Dan's going to not do that. So he stops the MySQL 5.6 jail, and then he goes into the, the database directory for it, uh, makes a temp directory, uh, and then does the ZFS create to set it up. Yep, nice and easy. So he creates a uh, vardb, vardb mysql, mysql underscore secure, and mysql underscore tempter. Uh, and then he sets can mount on to all of them. Uh, you shouldn't need to do that. Uh, can mount is one of the only properties that is not inherited. Other thing is, you can uh, do Z Z Z zfs create dash o property equals value uh, as part of the create. So you could make this one step instead of two but it would make the commands longer. So I see why he didn't do that. Yeah, and everything's nicely uh, documented and you get the, the screen outputs. Yeah, so we... Uh, he made all the parent directories uh, higher up the stack be um, not mounted so that they could overlay on top of... So the idea here is that the jail, the operating system of the jail, will all live on his regular pool, but the database directory will live on the NVMe. So he didn't want all of VARDB to be on the NVMe, only VARDB MySQL. So he used the CAMMount property to filter out which things would be mounted from the NVMe and which would come from the hard drives. Hmm. Makes sense, yeah. Anyway, it's a detailed guide, but you can check it out. And you can see he turned a time off and moved all his data from the old SQL directory to the new one. Yep. Very and straightforward. Go on. So yeah, uh, you can have all kinds of fun with mount points. Uh, <laughs> in the talk I gave at VBSDCon, what, 2015, I think, I talked about really interesting things you could do, uh, including mounting a bunch of stuff. Uh, so having USR be writable, but user bin and user S bin being coming from a different parent that was read-only uh, and that would be inherited. And so that you could make the operating system immutable, but the rest of the files not. Yes, yeah. And I also learned there from that presentation, I wasn't there, but I got the slides afterwards. Mm -hmm. The P option for ZFS create will create multiple data sets if you have yeah, uh, just longer like, path. Uh, dash P. Mm -hmm. So that was useful. And yeah, that's pretty much uh, what mm -hmm. ZFS provides for you. And it's pretty straightforward. If, uh, the only thing that most people trip over is that ZFS doesn't require deleting slash and path names. But if you say uh, ZFS set mount points equal, then you need to have the slash in right. front. Well, 
the dataset name is not a path name. It is oftentimes inherited and becomes the path name. But as you can see in Dan's setup, uh, the the ZFS dataset name is NVD MySQL 5.6, but the mount point is iocage slash jails slash MySQL 5.6 slash root slash far db. Blah, blah. Yeah. And so it's got whole sections that aren't there, and the beginning is very different. And so yeah, you cool. don't want to assume that a dataset name is the same as the mount point just with the leading slash. Uh, it's actually possibly quite different. Mm. And if you export and import pools on different systems, you might overwrite without thinking about it. If yes. you have common names like tank, um, then you might overwrite local file systems with similar. Uh, not overwrite, things. just overmount. But, oh, yeah, overmount. Yeah, not completely yeah. destroy them, but just shadow them. Yeah, make them invisible temporarily. Uh, and that's why when you do zpool import, there are two options. Um, if you do capital R, you can specify or using the options, you can specify an alternative root, and this will prefix all the paths of that pool with a different directory. So mm -hmm. you can import the second pool all relative to slash mnt, so that slash becomes slash mnt, so that it doesn't ever overmount something on your main system. Uh, or you can do a zpool import with capital N, and none of the file systems will be mounted, and you can manually mount them after. Yeah, that's nice. So, time for News Roundup this week. We have a branch for NetBSD 9 upcoming. Please help and test. And that's what the message says here on uh, the NetBSD mailing list, the current users. Uh, it starts with, folks, once again, we are quite late for branching the next NetBSD release, NetBSD 9. Initially planned to happen early in February 2019, they are now approaching May, and it's unlikely that the branch will happen before that. So on the positive side, they write, lots of good things landed in current in between, like new Mesa, new JE malloc, lots of ZFS improvements, good. And some of those would be hard to pull up on the branch later. So on the bad side, they saw lots of churn in current recently, and there is quite some failout where not e uh, we're not even have to good overview right now. So they're still looking at a couple of things there. And this is uh, where you can help. So please test current on all the various machines that you have. Remember, NetBSD runs on the smallest toaster to the biggest uh, mainframe. Um, especially interested um, or interesting to them would be to test results from uncommon architectures or strange combinations, like the Spark user land on Spark 64 kernel issue that they ran in uh, apparently yesterday. Um, so yeah, test, report, uh, successes or failures and file PRs for those. And they will likely announce the real branch date of quite uh, short notice. So likely next candidates would be mid-May or end of May, um, which may require, haha, pun intended, uh, need to do extra steps after the branch. Uh, however, less difference between current and the branch, the easier it will be uh, for the release cycle to go. And their goal is to have an unprecedented short release cycle this time. But they always say that up front. Uh, next up, we have LibreSSL 2.9.1. Um, so with that announcement, the arrival of LibreSSL directory on your local OpenBSD mirror. Uh, the, this is the first stable release from the 2.9 series, which is uh, what is bundled into OpenBSD 6.5. Mm. Uh, changes since 2.8 include API and documentation enhancements, including uh, the crypto lock is now automatically initialized. 
Okay. Uh, some compatibility changes. They added a uh, password-based key derivation function to key derivation support. Uh, so you can use uh, a pbkdf2 with OpenSSL's enc command. And they changed the defaults to be better. So the default for encrypt is now SHA-256. Uh, and the default for digest is now SHA-256. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, sorry. The default digest type for encrypt and digest is now both SHA-256. Um, the default fingerprint for X509 is SHA-256. And the default for the certificate uh, revocation list is now SHA-256. Um, most, like, uh, if you were actually getting a certificate and paying for it from somebody, they've all required SHA-256 for a while, but it, mean, it required you to tell OpenSSL, hey, I want that rather than MD5 uh, because the default was still MD5. Uh, mm. So it's nice that they caught up with that. Cool, yeah. That's good to have without uh, providing extra they've options. they added uh, extensive interoperability tests between LibreSSL and OpenSSL 1.0 and 1.1. The idea here is to uh, make it so that programs don't have to pick one or the other. They can actually be compatible with both. Lots of internal improvements and some uh, portability improvements. Uh, and some of the big stuff includes that they now have uh, support for the SM3 hash function and SM4 block cipher, uh, which are the new Chinese standards. Um, they added more OpenSSL underscore no underscore macro compatibility so that if your program tries to disable something by setting a flag for OpenSSL, that LibreSSL will respect that. Um, they started porting the elliptic curve key method API uh, uh, from OpenSSL to LibreSSL uh, because they want to use it in OpenSSH. Uh, they implemented some more missing stuff from the OpenSSL 1 to 1 API and added support for XCHACHA20 and XCHACHA20 Poly1305. Okay, well, that's a solid improvement. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so as a closing thing there, that the LibreSSL project continues the improvements of the code base to reflect modern, safe programming practices, and they welcome feedback and improvements from the product community. And they thank all the computers who helped make this release possible. Indeed. So as a kind of a continuation to uh, our interview that we had a couple episodes ago with Michael W. Lucas, we now have uh, on his blog the FreeBSD Mastery Jails Bail Bond Denied Edition. <laughs> so Michael writes, uh, he had a brilliant, hideous idea to produce a charity edition of FreeBSD Mastery Jails uh, featuring the cover art uh, he would use if he was in prison and did not have access to real cover artists. Uh, well, in quote, <laughs> never mind that he wouldn't be permitted to release books while in jail. Uh, the, the sort of creative folks uh, there are uh, at mere legal and cultural details. So, yeah, um, he originally wanted to produce his own take on the book's cover art. His first attempt failed spectacularly and then downgraded his expectations and tried again and again and again. And he's pleased now to reveal the final cover for FreeBSD Mastery Jail Bail Bond Edition. So here, yes, well, <laughs> it's it's certainly artistic in, in a certain way. And uh, this cover represents the, fir- the very pinnacle of his artistic talents, he writes, and it's the result of literally hours of efforts uh, that weren't spent on writing. 
mind you. Um, but as this book is available only to the winners of charity fundraisers, purchase of this tome represents moral supremacy. He recommends flaunting it to your family, co-worker, and all those lesser of character. And you can get your copy by winning the BSTCAN 2019 charity auction, which is in a couple of weeks only, mm-hmm. uh, or any other auction-type event that he deems worthwhile. And as far as his moral fiber goes, he has learned that art is hard and artists are not paid enough. And if he's ever imprisoned, uh, he does hope that we'll contribute to his bail bond. Uh, otherwise, you get more covers like this one. <laughs> yep. Okay. <clears throat> and then Very finally, nice. we have a post from uh, our friend Chris Cyberman about one reason that Ed was a good editor back in the days of V7 Unix. Ah, interesting. Says, it is common to describe Ed as being a line-oriented as opposed to screen-oriented editor like VI. This is completely accurate, but it is perhaps not a complete enough description for today because Ed is line-oriented in a way that is not now uncommon. After all, you could say that your shell is line-oriented too, and very few people, very few people use shell uh, that work and feel the same way as Ed does. Uh, the surface difference between most people's shells and Ed is that most people's shells... Uh, have some version of cursor-based interactive editing. Uh, the deeper difference is that this requires the shell to run a uh, character-by-character TTTY input mode, uh, also called ROM mode. By contrast, Ed runs in what Unix usually calls cooked mode, where it reads whole lines from the kernel and the kernel handles things like the backspace processing. All of Ed's commands are designed so that they work uh, in this line-focused way, including being terminated by the end of the line. And as a whole, Ed's interface makes this whole line input approach natural. In fact, I think Ed makes it so natural that it's hard to think of things being any other way. Ed was designed for time, or, or for line at a time input, and not to be used uh, in a screen-oriented manner. Um, he says this was carefully preserved in uh, the University of Toronto's Ed Very Clever Zap command which let you modify a line by writing out the modifications on a new line beneath the original. This input mode is not very important today, but in the days of V7 Unix and serial terminals, it made a real difference. In cooked mode, V7 ran very little code when you entered each character. Almost everything was deferred until you actually, until it could be processed in bulk by the kernel uh, and then handed to Ed all in a single line, which Ed could then process all at once. A version of Ed that tried to work in ROM mode would have been much more resource-intensive, even if it still operated on a single line at a time. If you want to imagine such a version of Ed, think about how a typical readline-enabled Unix shell can move back and forth through your command history while only displaying a single line. Now augment that sort of interface with a way of issuing VI-like bulk editing commands. (laughs) Uh, This is part of why I feel that Ed was once a good editor. Uh, Ed is carefully adapted for the environment of early Unixes, which ran on small small and slow machines with limited memory, which led to Ed not holding the file it's editing in memory, instead only dealing with a line at a time. Uh, Part of this adaptation is being an editor that worked with a system, uh, not against it. And on V7 Unix, that meant working in cooked mode instead of raw mode. VI appeared on more powerful and more capable machines. I believe it was first written when BSD Unix was running on the VAX. 
Mm, could uh, very well be. And then he uh, updates his post saying he's gotten some feedback. Um, he says, I'm wrong in part about how V7 Ed works. See the comment from Frank G. V7 Ed uh, runs in cooked mode, but it reads input from the kernel a character at a time instead of in large blocks. Ah, uh, okay. But yeah, it's an interesting piece of history or editor history and how the early days of Unix were line-oriented. Well, it could make a big difference as far as, uh, especially when you're on really slow remote connections, uh, not redrawing a bunch of stuff on the screen all the time. Mm, which is just, yeah, that's true. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Remember a couple of episodes ago when Alan said that in April there would be interesting things coming down the ZFS pipeline? Here they are. Yes. Call for testing. Uh, so, Chris Moore, who you might have heard about on this show before when he hosted it, um, <laughs> has issued the call for testing for the new FreeBSD, or a ZFS on FreeBSD, I think is what they've been calling it. Uh, but this is... As we work to try to change the upstream version of ZFS uh, from Illumos to Linux, because that's where new features are landing, um, it was decided that because of the level of divergence, it would make more sense to uh, report ZFS from Linux to FreeBSD um, using the existing Solaris compatibility layer that was already that's already being used by Linux and FreeBSD. Um, so we're not uh, as part of porting ZFS on Linux to FreeBSD, we're not actually using the Linux KPI stuff like we do for the graphics drivers. It's all still native FreeBSD code uh, or using the Solaris wrappers to translate Solaris code that ZFS uses to FreeBSD code. Uh, so there's not actually any Linux code being used here. But anyway, uh, importing that newer version of ZFS onto FreeBSD and the first public call for testing is now available. So you can install from ports uh, sysutils zol and sysutils zol-kmod, and this will provide the user land and the kernel module uh, for this new version of ZFS. Mm. Now, the existing user land is not compatible because it's for an older version, basically. Um, so it works better if you have a version of FreeBSD compiled with ZFS turned off and then install this version from ports. Uh, and it only works with 12 stable and 13 head because it requires the new encryption algorithm support that's only available in those versions. So to make your life easier, they offer pre-built ISOs of FreeBSD 12 and FreeBSD 13 uh, with ZFS disabled and the package set up for you. So if you grab uh, these images and try them out, you can actually see how... Uh, the new version of ZFS will work and get to play with some of the new features, um, including uh, like zpool iostat has support for displaying latencies. There's a bunch of other histogram stuff, so it's easier to get information about what ZFS is doing and how fast it's going and so on and so on. Um, and uh, there's a couple other things in there, including the new um, native encryption stuff, although I would avoid... Uh, focusing on that part just yet as it's got a bunch of updates so this snapshot of the zfs on linux repo is from december um so it also does not have the trim support 
Um, so ZFS on Linux got its the the new version of Trim that was developed at Nexenta on Solaris years ago, and it's now finally available for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they added that in over the course of the month of April. So once uh, this call for testing is done and we get the um, the release of ZFS on Linux 0.8 is done and the first big splurge of commits that we're waiting for that to finish all land, then we will uh, rebase the ZFS on Linux port uh, on FreeBSD and get that done. Oh, uh, so by the end of the summer, we should have... Uh, all the features that Linux does available, including the new better trim support and the um, native encryption uh, and all of the other features that have come uh, to ZFS on Linux uh, or anything. So all the newest ZFS stuff will be available on FreeBSD with this, and it looks pretty good. If you do find issues, uh, please head over to uh, ZFS on FreeBSD slash ZOF on GitHub and file the bug reports. Yes, the more testing we get, the better uh, the bugs are uh, found and hopefully fixed. And yep. from that point on, we'll all, um, once we have that uh, imported after the summer, uh, we'll make uh, the integration between the two parts or the collaboration between the different projects that are using ZFS much easier. Yes. Uh, like I think the, the goal here now is that later in the summer, when we get synced up with ZFS and Linux, we'll actually open a pull request against ZFS on Linux to add the FreeBSD support to their repo. Mm, Understood. Uh, And so the ZFS stuff will live upstream, or sorry, the FreeBSD bits will live upstream, and new commits to ZFS on Linux will have to pass the CI testing on Linux and FreeBSD before they can be merged. Okay. So that'll save effort for both us and them and make everybody happy. Yes, and the interoperability, if you have to, um, you know, transfer data between uh, different operating systems that are using ZFS, will always have the same features available. Yeah, what'll be the most interesting is trying to decide whether we want to stick with keeping the ZFS stuff as a port, because it can be updated more often that way, and means that, for example, FreeBSD 12.1 could get updated ZFS without having to update the OS. Mm-hmm. But there are downsides to having ZFS external. So we probably want it internal. Yeah. But can we make it coexist so that you can have it built into FreeBSD like it is now and have all the good integration, but have the option to upgrade the version of ZFS from packages and have it not conflict with the version in base? Yeah, yeah. But that's will. That's decisions that need to be happening once the integration is uh, done. For that, what we might consider doing is having the binaries that live in the usual place, like the zpool command and the zfs command, actually be smart wrappers that know, okay, look for the package. If it's not there, then look where we stashed the FreeBSD native ZFS stuff. Hmm. So that if you have the package installed, you don't have to modify your path to use it first. The switcher will do it. And if you don't, then it'll run the the FreeBSD versions or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, we end up with naming the command zfs.freebsd and uh, zfs.zof or something like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, And then the switcher switches between those two or something. Mm. Yeah, that's... Interesting ideas. Uh, That is something we'll figure out. 
probably in the fall rather than sooner. Yeah. So keep testing, report feedback, anything that you find, and then yes. it will be If you want ready. the upgrade of ZFS to go smoothly, you have to help out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, we have a simple DNS ad block for you. Uh, first of all, uh, we have a little bit of graphic because it uh, provides a web front end to see how much blocking was going on on a specific URL or a specific uh, target. And they have, it's basically built upon, um, what's it called? DJB DNS? Oh, no, mm -hmm. DNS masquerading. Yeah, so yep. DNS mask. And that is used, uh, first of all, you um, to build the web front end, you build the, um, their instructions how to build the jar using Gradle. And running that, um, then there's uh, commands to run the block list to update that one because you want to always have the latest um, websites that are uh, into the ad block thing. And so that needs to be updated regularly. And then there's uh, the log processor that basically goes through your log files and figures out, ah, this should be blocked, this shouldn't be. And then the database is queried by the web app, which sends requests, which are processed uh, by the Kotlin backend. And then you install the DNS server on FreeBSD only. They have instructions uh, using two sysrc commands to add that to your edcrc.conf. And there's a little bit of a config section for your DNS masquerading daemon, and that's provided as well. What's really interesting here is looking at the graph they have, uh, which shows, looks like a one-day period, uh, more than half of the queries uh, were blocked as being ads. So mm -hmm. you can imagine how much this could actually speed up your web browser experience as it blocks Facebook ads and cookies on every website, Google Analytics, um, Microsoft stuff, DoubleClick, which is also Google ads. Uh, yeah, you will see the web in a completely new light. YouTube ads, lots of other ads. And it's since it's um, blocked at a very low level, at the DNS level, it will not have to process, like Alan said, a lot of stuff uh, into your browser first without yep. and then discarding it there um, so that will speed up things significantly in certain cases yeah and on mobile devices it can end up saving a lot of battery oh yes yeah uh, so that's significant so yeah try it out and see how it works for you then we found an AT&T Unix PC in 1985 on Twitter this is a posting mm -hmm. uh, from kernel perspective Uh, so the tweet goes, when AT&T attempted to market Unix PC in 1985, Byte created the cover story, the Byte magazine. Uh, machine was running Unix System 5 Revision 2 and used a primitive windowing system called User Agent. The price was uh, $6,600 for 20 megabyte hard disk with one megabyte of memory, about $15,000 in today's uh, terms. And you can see the picture here from the Byte magazine. Yeah, here we go. That was 1985. Cool. Yep. Uh, or for only $5,095, you get the 10 megabyte hard drive version with only half a megabyte of memory. <laughs> for a few dollars more, yeah. Uh, Unix itself was an extra $495. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and there's a bunch of people uh, commenting on that. Yeah, so there was a, a Motorola 6810 processor which provided 32-slash-16-bit microprocessor, so 32-bit internal data path and registers, but 16-bit external data bus, a 24-bit address line, so meaning it could address up to 16 megabytes of data, 
and support for virtual memory, which would be swap, basically, ran at 10 megahertz uh, and could be expanded with up to 2 megabytes of memory. Yeah, I mean, you have to start somewhere. I mean, this is how modern computing got, got started. Includes custom memory management hardware and a Winchester disk, allowing a virtual memory space of up to 4 megabytes using a 4 kilobyte page size. And had a 16 kilobyte EEPROM used for initialization program when power or reset is applied. I mean, you have I mean, to have that, of course. And a double-sided 5.5-inch floppy drive using 48 tracks per inch, capable of reading IBM PC data and source code disks, and storing 320 kilobytes uh, per disk in AT&T format, or 360 bytes per disk in MS-DOS format. And don't forget the mouse, the three-button optomechanical mouse, needs no special surface. So yeah, we'll, we might be laughing, but back in the days, this was state-of-the-art, and a lot of things and were built on that. 12-inch green-on-black display uh, displays bitmap graphics at resolutions of up to 348 by 720 pixels. Classic. I mean, we, we tune our terminals nowadays to have that retro look, but that is the standard where they all uh, started with. Yep. What, you want colors? 4K? What's that? Uh, 4K, that's the amount of memory you have to do all the screen with. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all coming back in some way. Okay, um, speaking of coming back, OpenBSD Current DRM at 4.19 includes new support for Intel GPUs like Coffee Lake. No, this is not the Coffee Lake you get when spilling your coffee. Uh, this is the CPU. And this is the uh, change log that we have here, or the commit, actually, on OpenBSD-CVS. And it's a lot of stuff. And yeah, uh, add support for more Intel hardware, Broxton, Apollo Lake, uh, Amber Lake, Gemini Lake, Coffee Lake, Whiskey Lake, and Cannon Lake, as well as Ice Lake. So a lot of people will be happy now that their GPUs are running smoothly uh, on OpenBSD. Yeah, I kind of wish that the port on FreeBSD mentioned what Linux version it was based on. I think we're at least that far ahead now as well, uh, mm. which is nice. It took a lot of effort, yeah. And apparently the OpenBSD Foundation was sponsoring this work and uh, Ketanis for, um, is also thanked here for helping and a bunch of other developers for testing. Oh yes, of course, you have to have the GPUs actually to, to test those. So yeah, that was uh, powered by sponsoring in the OpenBSD Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we found another Twitter thread uh, with the question, what are the differences between Linux and OpenBSD? And you might think that there's a lot of pitchforking and fire and uh, bad things uh, thrown at each other going on, but uh, it seems like this is fairly civil. Well, uh, at least for today's Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it, goes, uh, it, it starts like this. Maybe you have been reading about the release of OpenBSD 6.5 and wonder what are the differences between Linux and OpenBSD and to some extent other BSDs. And uh, Carlos Fenolosa, who has uh, written this post, uh, writes, I've also been there at some point, and these are his conclusions. And that's a Twitter thread of a couple of pages. And he covers a couple of things from documentation to, um, uh, yeah, X terminals or software available and 
of course, it starts with a disclaimer. Um, this list is aimed at people who are used to Linux and are curious about OpenBSD. It is written to highlight the most important changes from their perspective, not the absolute most important changes from a technical standpoint. And so, yeah. But it's basically, yeah, a good list of arguments, uh, pros and cons in, uh, yeah, making OpenBSD an interesting platform to at least have a look at. Yep, and then we have, uh, what's the next one? The uh, package source. Ah, yes, package source uh, 2019 Q1 has been released. Uh, the package source developers are proud to announce their 62nd quarterly release uh, mm -hmm. in the cross-platform package manager, available with more than 22,000 packages running on 23 different platforms. Uh, and if you want to know more about package source, you can check it out there. In total, this quarterly uh, adds 227 new packages, 47 removed packages, and 2,174 packages have been updated. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, a good So effort. we have the new Bind 9.11 and 9.12, the Dolphin emulator. Uh, Firefox has been updated to uh, version 60.6 for the extended support version and 66 for the main version. GCC 7.4, Gitea 1.7.4, uh, updated Go, including 1.11 and 1.12, LibreOffice 6.2, uh, Mate 1.22, Midori 8, MySQL 5.6 and 5.7, NPM 9.6, or uh, 6.9, sorry, Nextcloud 15, Node.js 10.15, uh, PHP 5.6, and 7.3, uh, package in 0.11, which is the binary package manager for package source. Postgres 9.4.9.5.9.6.10.7 and 11.2. Uh, Python 2.7.3.4.3.5.3.6 and 7, or 3.7. Uh, my favorite, Quasl 0.13 is available. Ah, here we go again. <laughs> uh, Ruby 2.5 and 2.6. Rust 1.33. Uh, SQLite 3.27. Uh, Prolog 8, Tor Browser 8.5, uh, Vim 8.1.1004. That's a lot of patches. <laughs> WebKit GTK 2.24 and Zen 4.11. Uh, and they removed PHP 7.0 and Ruby on Rails 3.2. Yeah. And Go 1.12 is now the default. Mm hmm. Very nice. So yeah, uh, package source, not just on NetBSD, it's available on many other systems, and um, a lot of work goes into it, so thanks for uh, these efforts. Okay, let's get right into the feedback and questions section, uh, which has a couple of items in there, but there could be more. So if you have any question, uh, feedback, show ideas, topics that you want to have us cover in the show, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and uh, this will be the place to... Uh, put them here um today we start what, off with brad to be <laughs> it, that too yeah um <laughs> sure yeah um yeah okay let's go with the first one with brad uh with an iocage question uh goes like this hi jt alan and benedict uh as i recall alan uh, still uses warden for jails but i'm hoping yep. one of the others of you has experience with iocage so uh, on i've never used warden for jails i was still using easy jail um I don't have much experience with IOCage, but our friend Dan Langill has been using it quite a bit. Mm. Seems to like it, although he's had some issues with 
the latest version such that he had to switch to using the development version to get the fixes. And oh. then the development version had breakage two or three times as well. Uh, and so he's had some very interesting things with IOCage turning things read only on him and then back and then unmounting stuff and a bunch of weird stuff happening. But uh, he's still using it, so he must be a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check out his Twitter feed or his blog for more information about what he thinks of IOCage. Yeah. And uh, IOKH is also covered in uh, FreeBSD Mastery Jails. Um, mm-hmm. So there's my a good uh, start into the topic. Yeah, uh, Michael Lucas uh, covered it because he found it to be the most active one and had quite a few conversations with the developer to fix some bugs that he found while trying to test it. Um, so it seems quite new because of that, but uh, those bugs are getting fixed, which uh, is a good thing. Yes. So that was the uh, the question. Uh, first, ah, yes. The first question he has, is IOKH working in FreeNAS 11.2? I think it's based on all these jails that they run. It should I'm work fine. Fairly sure. yeah. So you skipped the rest of his question. Yeah. Um, oh, you mean the, the first paragraph? Yeah. Uh, so on his desktop machine, uh, he was running IOKH 0.99 something on TrueOS 18.3. Uh, had built several jails before he nuked and paved onto FreeBSD 12.0 release and did IOKH export jail name, then attempted to IOKH import on his laptop, which was already running 12.0 and IOKH 1.0. None of them would import on the 12.0 box. Unfortunately, he has lost the error messages. That might have something to do with that TrueOS 18.03. might have been old enough, Uh, but it's also possible that it was actually running newer versions of FreeBSD, like it was actually based on head, so it would be too new uh, and might have caused problems there. I'm not entirely... My understanding that IOKH export is actually a ZFS replication stream, and so it should be importable as long as you have a at least this new version of ZFS. Mm. I'm not entirely sure what IOKH export does, and yes, without the error message, it's hard to help you. Well, and the second question is, uh, will he be able to migrate... The first question we didn't answer yet. So yeah, the first oh, question yeah. about IOKH on 11.2, as far as I know, that works. Yeah, because they have an upgrade path for people who want to upgrade, so they uh, don't throw all the old the old jails out of the, out of the window. They have a way to upgrade to the newer version. Uh, the second, uh, will I be able to migrate jails from FreeNAS, uh, which has the Pi 36 IOKH version there? Right, so the IOKH version there... The version number is actually the version of FreeNAS underscore datesnam, which is not obviously the same as the actual version number they use on uh, FreeBSD, so it's hard to tell. That's mostly a question of IOKage, mm. but I would assume so. Yeah, maybe they have something in the FreeNAS forums about that. That might be a way to um, get right, some but help. It's also not something that FreeNAS is necessarily going to support. It's really, I'd ask the IOKage people on their site or github or whatever because that's uh they're more likely to have the answer than the freenas people mm. yeah so he'd like to start getting um setting up several jails one for saltmaster one for possibly monit and he's still shopping for a network monitor but that's a separate issue uh yeah so maybe someone has a practical experience about the jails or some recommendations um but figured uh, yeah just i know iocage has been changing a lot so it's entirely possible there were some compatibility problems um, between versions. Mm. Yeah, that's um, sometimes unavoidable. Um, 
but hopefully you have a way to uh, get those old jails back and uh, then migrate over. All right, so thanks for that question. Uh, next up is Frank with video from Level 1 Tech and a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes like this. I thought you guys might find this video from Level 1 Tech interesting. It's an update on their experience with the Cavium Thunder X on FreeBSD, Red Hat Enterprise, and SUSE. Yes, okay, that's I was a YouTube link. to follow up with that. I saw uh, Wendell asking questions about FreeBSD on uh, Thunder X. Uh, mm. and I think Ed helped him a bit, but I want to make sure that he got helped and I kind of forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and his question is, uh, you always hear about Linux distributions running white box slash bare metal network switches. Are there any BSDs in that uh, same space? Um, it depends mostly on the chipset and so on of the switch. Uh, for example, the little TP-Link uh, routers have a built-in Aethera switch that has drivers for FreeBSD, and so you can configure the switch to run... Um, uh, to like set up the VLANs and so on. Usually in these cases, it's actually a little different than it sounds. So there's a management plane that runs on like an ARM processor or something, or MIPS or whatever, um, and that runs Linux or BSD. Then the actual switch runs its own custom hardware on like an ASIC and just gets programmed by the management plane. And so the actual packets that are going through the switch never actually go up into the management plane. And there's just a utility in the management plane that can program the switch. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sure there's a couple that use BSD, but uh, it'd be nice if there were more. Yeah, and maybe people have found a way to uh, make BSD but, run on those. So yeah, the the big point is that the switching is still done by the switching hardware. The management interface is separate. Mm. And he finally writes, uh, I'd like to thank BSD now, but I have yet to try a BSD. The show was my early introduction to ZFS. Oh, wow. A friend asked if I had heard of ZFS and if I'd like to apply for a support position where he worked. That was a little over three years ago, and I have been at Datto ever since. Oh, great. That's interesting. Um, I've met quite a few people from Datto via ZFS user conference and ZFS developer summits. Mm -hmm. I worked with a a couple of them. Um, So... You yeah, might ask that, your friend if they've actually met me. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. if so, say hi from me. It's a small world, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's great feedback. I mean, just listening to a podcast, what kind of ideas and new directions uh, you might take. Yeah, but definitely want to say hi to Tom and Alex and a bunch of other people from Data that I've met over the years. Mm-hmm. And I was a little sad that I didn't get to come out and see you guys uh, for the ZFS user conference this year. Yeah. But maybe there's a next time uh, somewhere. All right. Thanks for that question, Frank. And uh, the last but not least is Nial with a revision control question. Uh, Goes like the following. Hi, Alan and Benedict. Could you give a quick overview of the FreeBSD project revision control system? Uh, He remembers Michael W. Lucas mentioning two systems during episode 267, but I think they were back to front. Uh, I corrected the statement, but the conversation had moved on. Ah, okay. And while reading the man page for Git, he was amused to find that his line in the name description, Git, the stupid content tracker. Uh, He can remember Alan mentioning that the FreeBSD Git repository was a read-only copy of the project, Source of Truth, but thought a quick rundown of the project setup could provide a useful guide to people. Sure. Uh, Currently, the Source of Truth for the source code for the operating system, the documentation, 
and the ports tree is in subversion, uh, which is a source code control system that uh, has existed since before Git um, and is the successor to CVS, which was the successor to SCCS. <laughs> uh, or no, CVS was the successor to RCS, which is the successor to SCCS. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's come the a main long difference way. is that CVS is based on basically each new commit has a number that monotonically increases and that's the revision number. So like, I think we just hit 500,000 revisions on the ports tree. Mm -hmm. Um, and each of those revisions is basically the diff that applies to the previous one. Uh, and so you just basically have this set of changes each time. Just um, the deltas. Yeah. Right. Uh, and SVN can do things that are a little bit copy on write. So when you branch, something so when you take the head version of freebsd and branch it off to make say stable 12 it doesn't take twice as much space anymore it just says oh these files are copies of these files from that time and then you just have a different set of diffs that apply to them uh git works a bit different instead of having diffs to files it has more the concept of this blob of code changed or moved um and it has some advantages the big difference is Git is uh, what's called distributed and offline, meaning you can do a Git commit on your laptop without the internet. So like if you're on an airplane, you can commit. Now that commit only lives on your laptop and later you can sync that up with other people. Whereas with SVN, commits send something to the repo and so require an internet connection to commit. Yeah, to a central place, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the downside to the Git way is that, you know, things can end up happening out of order kind of because i made a commit last week on my laptop i was on an airplane and i didn't think until today people that made commits in the meantime we have to like reorder it and the history can change and it's a bit weird mm. so there are pros and cons uh i don't know the internals all that much yeah there are books on that that are probably more in detail um but a number of people have kind of explained that SVN is a revision control system. It's designed to keep track of the current version of the software and, and solve problems and so on. Git is more of a collaboration tool. It's meant to make it easier to work with other people and doesn't necessarily do as good a job on keeping track of individual changes. Yeah. Although a lot of people are using it nowadays as the standard. Right. Be because it turns out we care more about being able to work with other people and and not waste time, then we care about making sure uh, we preserve the history things, things, until well, is, you don't lose history necessarily. We can, no, no, no. We we don't. You can squash a series of commits down to one and, and erase that part of history. But um, yeah, SVN bias is more towards being uh, exactly moving forward, and the and whereas Git is more about making it easier to, to collaborate with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was prompted to ask this question after reading a uh, blog post by uh, Greg Lemis, um, uh, The Horrors of Revision Control. Uh, the link is there. Uh, and at the end of the blog post, he thinks uh, he links to a humorous tongue-in-cheek auto-generated man page on Git. And Yes, yeah. um, there, there's a couple of websites that auto-generate man pages on Git, and they're quite funny. The Git user interface is pretty appalling at times. Uh, the 
worst part, I think, is just that they reuse some keywords that people are used to with things like subversion, but made them mean something else. Mm. So in subversion, to check out means to get a copy of a repo. It's like the first thing you do. But in Git, that's called cloning. And checkout is erase my changes and go back to what upstream had, which is what SVN calls revert. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although confusingly, sometimes revert, you would think, would mean I want to undo a change that's in the repo. But it actually means I want to throw away the changes I have that aren't in the repo. And then if you actually want to undo something that's in the repo in SVN, you have to do a reverse merge, basically. You merge the opposite mm. of the patch that added it to unadd it. Yeah. And, and it gets weird because if you've not pushed up to the repo yet, you can edit the local history and just make the commit never have happened. Although <laughs> if you've pushed it, then you have to do the negative commit thing. Yeah. So yeah, there are some tricks that aren't in a normal operation that, or that you wouldn't do normally, but sometimes they're necessary. So yeah, and he closes with, I uh, love the show and tune in each week from Australia. Oh, wow. That's a uh, lot you. of international people. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for enjoying that. And that's the end of our show this week. Uh, again, send us anything that you found about BSD uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have a future episode for you as always. Yep, thank you.